Sometimes you have to wait. Sometimes you have to wait. You may be uh, waiting for your children to come to their senses. You may be waiting to find employment. You may be waiting for your wedding day to approach or for healing for your body for some ailing sickness that you have. We often have to wait, don't we? And for God's people as they wait, one of the temptations that we have is to, to give up waiting in a godly way. In the book of Chronicles, we see that God's people are waiting. They're waiting for the promised kingdom of God to come. The Jews, as we had uh, had in that last reading, had been sent out of the promised land in what's called the exile. The Babylonians came, conquered the Israelites because of their sinfulness and taken them into Babylon in modern-day Iraq in what's called the exile. But now they have come back after the 70 years that the prophet Jeremiah spoke about, as we heard They've come back and they've rebuilt the temple under Ezra. They've rebuilt the wall under Nehemiah. But there's still no son of David sitting on the throne. There's no messianic king ruling over God's people in God's kingdom in Israel. And so they're waiting for God to finish and bring about his work. They're waiting for God to bring his Messiah. And so this is the first thing that the book of Chronicles is saying to us. It's saying that God is not finished with this world. As we look at the world and we see the way it's going in different areas, we might think, you know, where is the future for God? What future does the world have? Is there a future that God has in mind? Chronicles is saying, yes, there is. There's the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah to finish God's work in this world. But you have to wait. You have to wait. Now, if you're a Christian, as I've said, we we have to wait for things from God, don't we? And we have the temptation of not living the godly way as we wait. Maybe you're not a Christian. Well, the book of Chronicles is telling you that God is going to be doing something in this world and you should know about that. You should wait as well. And there's one more thing the book of Chronicles is going to do, and this is really the whole of 2 Chronicles. It's going to tell us how we wait, how we wait, what we're to be fixing our eyes on, what we're to be fixing our hope on as we wait, what we're to be looking for. So just a summary as we, uh, before we get to that. In my first sermon, we looked at chapters 1 to 9. And we saw there that that was that big list of genealogies. And that was showing Israel that they were the special nation amongst the nation of the world, of the nation of the world, that God has chosen to speak to this world. And so Israel has a, a mission to this world, and that mission continues. Then last week, we learned about David and the temple and how 
uh, David was the one who set up the temple and we're going to be learning more about the temple today and what, what the temple's about and how God interacts with the world through the, this David and um, the, the temple of God's presence. But in our final section, we're going to have a big section now about the sons of David. We're going to look at this in a moment, but the sons of David are the messianic figures of the Old Testament. And what happens in the book of 2 Chronicles is that it, even though it's written in the future, like even though it's written a long time after the kings that it talks about, it's going back in history and talking about these kings to say, this is what a good king's like, this is what a bad king's like, and this is what it means for, for that this is what you need to be waiting for, for when the Messiah comes. So it's going to, it's going to talk about, excuse me, it's going to talk about the kings of the past and their good points, their bad points. And it's, it's telling you about the past so that you can understand what you need to be looking for in the future, what type of Messiah you're meant to be looking for. And so as we learn about these kings, there's going to be some things that you, you're going to be encouraged to fix your eyes on. Fix your eyes on this type of king. Fix your eyes on that type of king. And this is how God's people are to wait for God's kingdom to come. They're to fix their eyes on this Messiah to come. Well, let's look at the first part then. The sons of David and the temple. So in 2 Chronicles, the first nine chapters are all about Solomon building the temple and the glory of the kingdom of God under Solomon. But again, I just want us to look at who Solomon is. So in one, if you've got your Bible, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 5, have a look at how Solomon is described. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 5. This is King David speaking, and he says, Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. He said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son. And I will be his father. Now, I just want you to look at what is said about Solomon there. It says that Solomon rules over the kingdom of the Lord. That is, Solomon rules over the kingdom of God. So when you're reading the book of Kings and Chronicles, you're reading about the kingdom of God expressed on earth. You know, when Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand, this is where it begins with the kings of Israel. And Solomon is the one who rules over the kingdom of God. And notice how Solomon is spoken about in verse 6. He will build the temple. We'll look at that in a moment. And it says that I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. Solomon was the son of God. The idea of the son of God doesn't begin with Jesus. It's in the Old Testament. It refers to Solomon. And God is his father. And this is actually applied to all these kings in David's dynasty. So just think about that. When you're reading Kings and Chronicles, you're learning about the, the messianic kings who are the sons of God, and God is their father. And they rule over the kingdom of God. 
Now, as we go through these nine chapters, we see that Solomon builds the temple. That's the first thing that comes with Solomon. He builds the temple. That is, the messianic figure is the one who builds the place where God and humanity come together. If you want to know one of the job descriptions of the Messiah, he's the one who brings humanity and God together. He's the temple builder. Next, we see that he's full of wisdom, and I'm sure you're familiar with that story with the, um, the, with the, the lady, the queen of Sheba, who comes to him asking him difficult questions, and we see Solomon's wisdom. But there's also trade that he does. He does trading throughout that whole region and brings wealth to Israel. There's peace and safety for Israel under Solomon. Let me tell you, there's very few times in history when there's peace and safety in the Middle East. But there was peace and safety in Solomon's time. There was wealth and abundance for God's people. And so we really see with Solomon the kingdom of God in the Old Testament in all of its glory. Let me just read to you from chapter 5, verses 13. Chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. Um, the trumpeters joined in unison as with one voice to praise and give thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments. They praised their voices, sorry, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and saying, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because the cloud because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Here is the kingdom of God in its glory. The temple is built. There is the wisdom of God going to the nations. There's peace and safety for God's people. And God's own presence dwells in the temple. The actual presence of God was in the temple. So here we see that the faithfulness of God. You can imagine if you're a Jew and you've, you've come back from exile you hear this story and you go, God was faithful in the past. God established his kingdom. So we know that he will bring his kingdom in the future. Now for us as Christians, it's similar, isn't it? We look back to Jesus and what Jesus has done. And when we look back to Jesus, we know that God was faithful. In fact, when we read our Bibles, we can read of God's faithfulness to Noah, God's faithfulness to Abraham, God's faithfulness, as we've seen, to Solomon. And we can see that God has been faithful in the past, and, we can, and from this we can know that God will be faithful and bring about his kingdom in the future. Now this is, of course, why you need to be reading your Bible regularly, reading it with your children, um, bringing the scriptures to those around you as you can, listening to the scriptures. I've been listening to the Bible a lot recently, and I found that really helpful, a, really, a, a new way of, of engaging with the Bible. Because when we do that, we see and are assured of God's faithfulness. So here we see, for these Jews, as they wait for the Messiah, uh, Chronicles is telling them, God's been faithful in the past. God has been faithful as you wait. But now it moves on to give them bad examples of the kings and messiahs of Israel and good examples. And this is to show them what type of messiah they're to be looking for while they wait. Who are they meant to be looking for? So let's look at the first one. This is with Jeroboam, King Jeroboam. Now, King Jeroboam 
He comes about after the kingdom of Israel splits into two. So this happens a long time. It happens after Solomon. The, the kingdom of the north becomes Israel and the kingdom in the south becomes Judah. And Solomon, uh, by a prophet of God, is given the kingdom in the north. But there's something he must do. That is, he's been given his, the kingdom in the north. God has said to him, I, I give you this kingdom. But he's got to allow his people, the Israelites, to go to another kingdom in Judah to worship God in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's, what, that's the only requirement God's got of the king. He's got this kingdom, but his people have got to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. And so Jeroboam is called upon to trust God. You can imagine if you're a leader and your people have to go to your opposition's country to worship, that requires faith in God, doesn't it? I guess in Jeroboam's mind, he was thinking that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense to worship God that way. Uh, he didn't trust that God would keep him. So what does he do? Have a look in chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, and we'll see what he does. Chapter 11, 14 and 15. <clears throat> um, make sure I've got the right chapter here. 14. Okay, uh, the priests and the Levites from all their descent, from all the districts uh, and, and, and out of Israel sided with the king of Judah. The Levites even abandoned their pasture lands and properties and came to Judah and Jerusalem because of what Jeroboam and his sons had done in rejecting them as priests. So Jeroboam, he rejects the priests of, of God and, verse 15, he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and calf idols that he made. Those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord their God. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. So what we see is that Jeroboam, he actually sets up a new religion. He sets up a new religion. He makes his own priests. And he says, you're not going to worship God God's way. I'm going to make a new religion. And he makes idols in the north of his country and in the south. So his people don't need to go anywhere. Now, I guess some people think they can pick and choose their religions and that it's up to them to do you know, whatever they want with religion. But that's not the case here. That's actually not the case. You need to worship God the way God says. But we see something else with Jeroboam, don't we? He puts his own interests above the interests of God's people. He puts his own interests above the interests of God's people. He should have shepherded God's people and cared for them. And instead, he puts his own interests above God's people. And for those of us who are Christian leaders, we need to remember this, that God's people are not here for our benefit, for our career, we are here to serve and shepherd God's people. So the Messiah is not going to be like this. When the Messiah comes, he will not look out for his own interest. He'll look out for the interest of others. He'll look for the interest of God's people. We see a similar thing with Ahaz. 
Ahaz is defeated by the Syrians. We see this in chapter 28. And, uh, and so what he does is he, he goes, well, I'm going to take on the, the gods of Assyria and I'll add those to my own god. And he follows the gods of the nations around him. He has the idea that, you know, all religions are true. I can just add them all together and it's all going to be fine. But not all religions are true. Not all religions are true. There's one God, and as we saw in the, at the beginning, this one God is spoken through the nation of Israel. But Ahaz ignores this. He ignores the message of, of the prophets and thinks that he can make religion as he likes. Now, you can understand for Jeroboam and for Ahaz that there's sort of difficulties that come their way. Ahaz had, uh, sorry, Jeroboam had the difficulty of thinking that he'd lose his kingdom, and obviously that would uh, be a stressful thing for him. Ahaz had lost in military battle, and so that's a time of suffering for him and his nation. But even in their sufferings like that, they're not to turn aside to false gods. They're to remain obedient to God. And so the Messiah, he's not going to be like Jeroboam. He's not going to be like Ahaz. Now we now move on to, to the good examples. And more time is actually spent on the good examples and to what makes for a good king. What makes for a good Messiah? What is the type of Messiah that Jews should be looking for? You know, that they're meant to be fixing their eyes on these kings so that they can recognise the Messiah when he comes. And the first one we meet is Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is different to these other kings in that he responds to the word of the Lord. When he hears, the, the word, <clears throat> when he hears God's word and he hears the prophets, he obeys. He obeys God. Now, I want us to think about obedience for a moment because obedience is devalued in our culture. Our culture does not like obedience. It doesn't. Even when we have something like the COVID uh, situation that we've had, we don't like to make rules. We rather like to educate people. And as we educate people, we encourage them to make the right choice. Now, we do have rules as well. But by and large, we, we don't like the idea of obedience. At schools, we don't say, obey your teachers. We no longer teach children to obey their parents. Things that were very commonplace, uh, at, at, at commonplaces and acts of obedience and understanding obedience, we don't really have anymore. In fact, it can be embarrassing Obedience, I want to say in our culture, is embarrassing. So if a child went to a party, and I've said this to my children, I've said, if you go to a party, and I like to pre prepare my children before they go to a, a party, I say, look, there might be people drinking or being sexually immoral or uh, taking drugs or something there. I said, if people in, ask you to do this, you can say, I'm not going to do it because I obey my parents. Now, my children won't say that because it's too embarrassing. That's really embarrassing to say I obey my parents, isn't it? For those young people here, you're not going to say that because that would be embarrassing. But that's how much we've devalued obedience in our culture. In the Bible, and in the book of Chronicles, that the king obeys 
is actually a virtue. Right? Obedience is actually a virtue in the Bible. We mustn't let our world fashion our view to obedience. Obedience is actually godly. It's what it means to be truly human as we obey God. And this is what we see Hezekiah do. Now, he trusts in a difficult time. Things are really difficult for Hezekiah because the Assyrians come against him and there's trouble all around him, but he trusts in God even when it's difficult, even when he's suffering. He then does something. Look in chapter 29, chapter 29, verses 2 and 3. We're going to see a series of things that these kings do. Um, Chapter 29, verses 2 and 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first year of the first month of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. That is, he goes and fixes the temple. He cleanses the temple and gets it all ready for people to worship God. Then in verse 10, look what he does in verse 10. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel... So he he makes a covenant. So he cleanses the temple. He makes a covenant with the people. See, this is the good king. This is the type of king you're to be looking for. He's obedient. He trusts in suffering. He cleanses the temple. He makes a a covenant. But look at the rest of verse 10. Um, Now I intend to make a covenant with uh, with the Lord so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. That is, he he turns aside the wrath of God. That's what this Messiah does. He's going to repent. He's going to live the right way so that God's wrath will be turned aside from God's people. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. See what else this king does. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and and also letters to Ephraim and Manasseh in the north, inviting them to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. So he does a Passover event. And so we see here that what the king does is key for what happens for everyone in the kingdom. So what makes for a good king under Hezekiah? What's the type of king you know you to fix your eyes on and to hope for? Well, he's obedient. He cleanses the temple. He's obedient under suffering. He makes a covenant with the people. He celebrates the Passover and he turns aside the wrath of God for God's people. He establishes the kingdom of God. Let's quickly look at Josiah and see what he does. Well, Josiah, he responds to the word of God. He removes the idols in the land. Look at chapter 34. Chapter 34, verse 8. Chapter 34, verse 8. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign to purify the land and the temple, he sent uh, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Marseiah, the, um, the ruler of the city, with Joah and Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So he goes and fixes the temple. It had been left in disarray. He goes and cleanses it, makes it good again, gets the temple working as it should. Look in verse 31. Let's see what, Hezekiah, what Josiah does. Verse 31. Uh, the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant 
in the presence of the Lord. That is, he does a covenant event. He fixes the temple up. He, he, he does a covenant event. And then in verse 35, verse 7, let's see what he does. 35, verse 7. Josiah provided for all the lay people uh, who were there a total of 30,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offering. So he celebrates the Passover, but notice what he does. The Messianic king provides the sacrifice for the Passover. You see what these kings do? They, not, they don't just celebrate the Passover, they provide the sacrifice for the Passover. So you, and as a result of this, we see in chapter 34, verse 28, that the wrath of God is turned aside on Israel. The king can intercede for the people. One of the things that the Messiah can do is that he, he intercedes on behalf of the people to turn aside the anger of God. So what does Josiah represent? What's the type of king you're meant to be hoping for when you look back in your past as a Jew and you see what was the, the good king like as we're, as we're waiting for the king to come? What was the good king like? Well, he, 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 he seeks God, he obeys God. He suffers and is faithful, even in difficult situations. He cleanses the temple. He makes a covenant with the people. He celebrates the Passover and provides the Passover sacrifice. And when he does this, he turns aside the wrath of God and brings God's blessing. And through this, he establishes the kingdom of God. This is the type of God they're to wait for. This is what the Messiah will do. Now, I want you to imagine that you were a son of David. Uh, we read about them in chapter 3 of Chronicles, uh, that the sons of David came back. And each of them were a potential Messiah. So imagine you're the son of David and you're reading the book of Chronicles. Then you'd know what you need to do, wouldn't you? You'd read that and go, I need to be like these kings. I need to do what Hezekiah did. I need to do what Josiah did. I need to do these things. This is what the prophet of Chronicles is telling me. But as we read Chronicles, we see that Josiah is, is not the one. As we had in our last reading, Josiah comes out in battle. He thinks he is the one, but he's not. And Israel returns to its sinful ways, and it's, it's destroyed by the Babylonians. And so we see that even with these great kings like Josiah, even with great kings like Hezekiah, the problem of sin is a major problem. And even as we, you know, as we look around the world with us today, we must realise that our leaders of the world can't deal with this problem of sin. These people like Hezekiah and Josiah, they were unable to do it. God himself must deal with our sins. God needs to do something different. There needs to be a king like these kings, but it needs to be something different as well. They demonstrate to us what needs to happen, but, but these kings themselves are not the answer. Now, to finish up, I hope you can see how Jesus fulfills the book of Chronicles. And I hope you can see that it's not just a verse here or there, is it? You know, when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law of prophets, uh, sorry, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, 
He's not just talking about a verse. He's actually talking about the whole thing. And I hope in Chronicles you can see how Jesus fulfills the whole book, the whole books of one and two Chronicles. You see, these books were written for Jesus to read and to know. I want you to imagine Jesus as a young man growing up, knowing that he's the Messiah and reading Chronicles and seeing what the Messiahs of the Old Testament did and what the Messiah of the future needs to do. He would read these books and know what he has to do. He would read these books and know what he has to obey. We can think that the Bible was written for us, but it's written for Jesus first. Jesus would have read this and understood, because he is truly human, he is God come to us, but he is fully God and fully human. He understood from the scriptures, being guided by the Holy Spirit through these scriptures as to what he needed to do. He, He knew that he needed to seek and obey his Father. He knew that he needed to be faithful under suffering. He knew that he needed to make a covenant with the people. He knew that he needed to celebrate the Passover and to provide the Passover sacrifice. And he knew that in doing this, he would turn aside God's wrath on God's people and that he would establish the resurrection kingdom that God had promised And this is how the Gospels record Jesus as the Messiah. What I've just said to you is just the outline of any Gospel, isn't it? But I hope you can see that that outline actually comes from Chronicles. It's because Jesus read Chronicles and knew what he had to do. Now, Chronicles is written for us. It is written for us so that we can know who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But it's also written for us so that we can put our faith in Christ and that we can fix our eyes on him. In the past, they fixed their eyes on Hezekiah and Josiah as their great kings. We now fix our eyes on Jesus as we wait. We now join in him in the work that he has come to do. And it's worth the wait. Waiting for God is worth it. Waiting for God is worth it. Because we need to wait like these Jews had to wait. But we do wait differently. We wait knowing that the true king has come, that the true king has obeyed, that the true king has suffered and was faithful, that the true king has made the covenant that will endure, that the true king has provided the Passover sacrifice to take away sin Once and for all, we have the fulfillment. We have the perfect king. And so it's Jesus that we are to put our faith in and to fix our eyes on as we wait for him to return. Amen. Amen.